fun. We're going to have our second uh, Bible reading now. And that is from Romans chapter 9. So if you'd like to follow with me in a pew Bible, you can find it on page uh, 1185, or else it's going to be behind me, or in your phone app or personal Bible. Romans 9 from verse 1 reads like this. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption of sons. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple, worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return, and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father, Isaac. Yet, before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us for who resists his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to what formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? What if God, choosing to show his wrath and making his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us whom he has also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people, whom are not my people, and I will call her my loved one. 
who is not my loved one. And it will happen in that very place where it was said to them, you are not my people. They will be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom, we would have become like Gomorrah. This is God's word. Now, some of you were perhaps uh, thinking, what did Owen do to his finger? I'll draw attention to Owen for a bit. Your finger's broken, broken bone. I called him this afternoon and asked, any tears? No tears. There you go. He's with us this evening. Good on you, mate. Uh, now, for the rest of you, uh, if, you if you're new here uh, this evening, there is an outline that will hopefully be helpful for you. Uh, there's also a full transcript for those of you who do need it. Um, it is uh, strange that it, it seems that we're starting at Romans chapter 9, and that's because last year we did Romans chapter 1 to 8. So if you want to be filled in on what we covered, you can find that out online. Uh, but just as God promises, as he speaks to us in his word, he will change us. So let's pray towards that end. Let's join in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that tonight you will fill our minds with your truth, Convict our hearts in your way and move our hands for your cause. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, have you ever wondered, have you ever thought about, how is it at all possible that any person at all, be it you or me or anyone, can get to heaven? That anyone can have eternal life? that anyone can become a Christian in the first place. Have you ever thought or wondered, how is that at all possible, that anyone can become a Christian, where wretched sinners become glorious saints, those burdened by guilt be liberated by forgiveness? How is that possible? Those shamed by regrets can be unashamed before God. Those who are slave to sin find freedom in righteousness. Those who belong to the kingdom of darkness find themselves in the kingdom of Christ. Those who are concerned for themselves first suddenly change and find themselves concerned for God first. How does that happen? Or those who will have nothing to do with God at all suddenly change and be adopted as a child of the living God. Or those who are despairing and hopeless in life somehow find lasting joy and glorious hope. Or those who are dead be brought back to life again. I mean, those are all the things that happens to a Christian. And so have you ever wondered, how is that possible? How does anyone become a Christian? It is humanly impossible. Like a leopard trying to change its own spots. It just can't do it. It can't happen. And so how was it possible then for any of you who are Christians 
became a Christian in the first place? Have you wondered that? Or how is it possible for those of you who are not yet Christians, perhaps one day become a Christian? How is that possible? Is it because maybe you have the mind for Christianity? You like theology, you like thinking about God, and it makes sense to you? But then if that's the case, what if you don't have the mind for it? Does it mean then you can't become a Christian? Or is it because of your upbringing? Went to Sunday school, youth group taught by Christian parents? But let's just say you don't have such an upbringing. Does it mean that you can't become a Christian? Or is it simply because you chose to become a Christian? I chose to believe it was my choice to become a Christian. Which really means I chose to become a saint. I chose to be forgiven. I chose to become righteous. I chose to enter the kingdom of Christ. I chose to become a child of God. It was because I chose it. That's how it happened. Now, if that is what you think, what we will come to see today will come as a big shock. Today, we plumb the depths of the mind of God himself. And we consider the doctrines, the truth, the teachings of predestination and election. This passage is, in fact, quite difficult to understand. But perhaps it's even more difficult to accept. It was this chapter that I spent my final year writing a thesis on. 15,000 words if you want to read it. It's a difficult chapter. But what we'll see in this chapter is that the ultimate reason... For anyone, you, me, anyone, becoming a Christian in the first place is God and not us. God's sovereign choice and not ours. And when we come to understand this, hopefully by the end of today, it might seem greatly unsettling that God is so powerful and sovereign. It might seem uncomfortable and even defeatist, but there is great comfort and assurance and motivation for the Christian. So let's have a look. Romans chapter 9. Keep your Bibles open. Paul begins this chapter expressing his crushing heartache and his unceasing anguish. But we need to ask why. I mean, Romans 8, if you remember, is the glory of the gospel. If anything, it is wonderful and extraordinary news. That God himself, the God of the universe, would even spare his son for you. That you might experience the greatest love of all. The love of God for you. That is what we learnt in Romans chapter 8. Paul knew that. And Paul had that. And so why now does he begin this chapter with this unceasing anguish? Well, it's because some won't get it. And not just anyone, but the very people of God. Some of Paul's own kinsmen will miss out on this gospel. Some of them will not experience the love of God. Some of them will not inherit eternal life. And some of them will face the wrath of God. You see, the gospel is good news. It is wonderful, brilliant news. But it is only wonderful news if you believe it. Because if you don't, it is terrible news. It is terrifying news. 
You see, often we like to imagine what heaven might be like. Being in heaven, having eternal life with all our loved ones around. A wonderful heavenly reunion. It's lovely just to think about. But just imagine those loved ones are not in heaven. The loved ones of ours are in the other place and they will face a godless eternity. The brother, the sister, the auntie, the uncle, the cousin, the friend. How unceasing your anguish will be to even consider that thought. And that is why Romans chapter 9 follows Romans chapter 8. You see how wonderful the gospel is? Well, if you understand how wonderful the gospel is, then you'll understand how terrifying it is to miss out on this gospel. And that's why Paul began this chapter this way. He expresses that here. I'd rather miss out on heaven so that my people won't. Have a look at verses 2 and 3. Paul says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. You see, the gospel joy of Romans 8 is now balanced by the gospel anguish of Romans 9. And so what Paul then does is he spends the rest of this chapter answering why. Why is this the case that people will miss out? Why is this the case that the people of God will miss out? You know, they were the ones who were adopted by God. They're the ones chosen by God, given the covenants and the promises and the temple worship. They have the patriarchs and the Messiah came from them. Why did they miss out? And so what Paul does in the rest of this chapter, he anticipates the questions that we would ask and they would ask. And they are these three. Has God failed? Is God unjust? And is God unfair? You see, the gospel raises these questions. If not all Israel are saved, then has God failed to keep his promises? Well, Paul answers here, God has not failed. You see, it was never God's purpose that every single Israelite, ethnic Israelite, is considered by God his people. God's purpose was always a people, a remnant within a people. And that's what we see. Verse 6, have a look. It is not as though God's word has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. And so Paul's making a very simple point. If you are of the blood, it does not necessarily mean you are of the promise. Not every single Israelite who descended from Abraham received the promise. In fact, Abraham's very own two sons. Both of them didn't receive it, only one. There's Ishmael, there's Isaac, and it was only Isaac who received the promise. That's what Paul goes on to say. Look at verse 7 and 8. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. And so Paul's like this awesome lawyer. He's building his case. Being of the blood does not necessarily mean that you are of the promise. 
And therefore, God's promise has not failed. God has not failed to keep his word. And to strengthen his case further, he now takes an example of twins, Jacob and Esau. Twins, same father, same mother. You can't get any closer in blood than twins. You can't get any more similar than twins. But only one of the twins received a promise. The other one missed out. And on what basis did one receive it and the other miss out? It was not because one was better or smarter or anything at all. But it was solely on the basis of God's sovereign choice. God's election, one over the other. Look at verses 10 to 13. Not only that, but Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who caused, she was told, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. I mean, they are strong words there. And so why Jacob and not Esau? Why did Jacob the younger inherit the promises? Well, the answer is simply because it was God's choice. We don't read here, Jacob I prefer and Esau I forgot. And we don't read here, Jacob I like but Esau I dislike. We don't read here, Jacob is a nicer bloke and Esau wasn't. What do we read here? Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. You don't get stronger stronger words than that. And it was decided before they were born. Now this goes against all that is normal, you see. The favourite should always be the oldest son. I'm the oldest son. I'm not the favourite, but anyway. It's in, in history, it's the oldest son who gets the inheritance, who becomes the heir. And if anything, in the story of Jacob and Esau, if I were to choose, I wouldn't be choosing Jacob. He's the mummy's boy. No one likes the mummy's boy. You probably can work out that I was never the mummy's boy. But you see, it was decided even before he became the mummy's boy. And so Paul... He's making his case. Being of the blood does not necessarily mean you are of the promise. And so our first question, has God failed? Well, no. God has not failed to keep his promise because those whom God chose did receive the promise. But of course this raises another question that we would be asking. If God chooses the one who gets the promise who gets to be saved, then is God unjust? Our second question. How is it justice that God gets to choose? Esau had no choice in missing out on the promise, and Jacob had no choice in getting the promise. And Paul's really making a point about Christianity as well, about Christians. What this is really saying is that I have no choice that I am a Christian in the first place. It was God's choice. It was God's choice ultimately. And so here Paul continues to build his case once again by referring to what was said to Moses and to Pharaoh. God gets to choose 
whom he shows mercy and compassion to. Look at verses 14 and 15. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And that makes perfect sense. Mercy and compassion does not and cannot depend on anyone apart from the one showing it. It cannot be demanded and it cannot be earned. And so, for example, I'm a parent and parenting is a difficult task. It's a very difficult task, in fact. Our children, we have three, they don't always behave as they should. Hard to believe. They're pastors' kids, they should, but it is true, they don't, don't always believe. And so most of the time what happens, well, depending on what mistakes they've made, what they have done, they would get disciplined or even punished. But then once in a while, what I would do as the father, I would intentionally choose to show them mercy. I would withhold the punishment. I would intentionally do so. And I'll punish the neighbor's dog instead. No, I don't. That's a scary German shepherd. I don't punish him. But sometimes I would intentionally choose not to punish them, withhold it. And I will say to them, one of these childs who will remain nameless because this one always gets in trouble. But anyway, you, you know you are wrong, right? And you know why you are wrong. You know you deserve to be punished. But I will not punish you. I will not punish you this time. I will show you mercy. I will do this once in a while just to teach them of God's greater mercy. But you see, to show them mercy as the Father, that is my choice. They deserve punishment, but I choose to withhold it. It does not depend on them. And so it is with God. And that's why we read in verse 16, it does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. It is God's business to show mercy to whomever he wants. And no one can claim that God is unjust. In fact, if God acts justly and gives every rebel of God what they deserve, then everyone would justly deserve punishment. Everyone would deserve to go to hell. That is what everyone deserves. But God chooses to show mercy so that some will not receive the punishment they do deserve. You see, justice and mercy are mutually exclusive. And so here, God is not unjust. Showing mercy is not about justice at all because mercy is his choice out of his kindness to do what was unnecessary and continue to do what is unnecessary. Now, this might make you uncomfortable, but this next bit will make you even more uncomfortable. Not only does God choose to show mercy to whomever he wants, he also hardens the heart of whomever he wants. And so not only was Pharaoh hardening his own heart, but God also hardened his heart. He's responsible and God is sovereign at the very same time. You see, Pharaoh's will was always within the sovereign will of God. And so have a look, verses 17 and 18. 
For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Now do you see what that verse is saying? Why was it that Pharaoh got to live? Why was it that his life was preserved through infancy and childhood and teenage years? Why was it that Pharaoh ascended the throne of Egypt? For what purpose? It was for God that I might display my power in you. But now some of us might ask, doesn't that sound so egocentric of God? Well, it would if it came from any other person. You see, we're not at the centre of the universe, but God is. And so God is merely making known to us his place as God. We can't forget here that God is God. We are not. We're not rivals. God is God and we are not. And so the second question, is God unjust? Well, no. The justice of God does not even come into the equation. God will show mercy and harden whomever he wills. And why? Because he's God. But now this, of course, raises another question, the third question here. Maybe I can't question God's justice, but is God unfair then? I mean, does God have the right to do all of this? Why does he blame me if I don't even get a choice anyway? You see, these are real questions. And they're the questions Paul anticipates. Look at verse 19. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? It's not my fault, I don't believe. It's not my fault, I'm not chosen. But how did Paul answer? It's like in wrestling, it's smackdown. He puts us in our place. Who do you think you are? Now I love these following verses because though it sounds so harsh, what it does is that any pride in me, any pride left, it is gone completely. I don't stand in judgment over God. He stands in judgment over me. He is God and I'm not, so know my place. Have a look, verse 20 and 21. But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, Why do you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? So doesn't God have the right? And who are you, O oh man? You see, we're like tiny specks of sand on the beach compared to the God of the universe, and we try to talk back to the God of the universe? I mean, what right do we have to question God? He's God. You see, it is God's sovereign right to do what he wants as creator. Like a potter, he can choose to make some of us like fine china, and some of us like disposable plastic plates. And so fairness does not even come into the equation. You can't question God's fairness because it is his right. He is God. And he is a good God. A gracious, loving God. But he is God. So why then doesn't God show mercy to everyone? We might ask that. Well, Paul answers that. 
Is it not possible at all that in the manifold wisdom of God that he might have some greater purpose, some greater reason that we're not aware of, some greater purpose that we're not privy to? Well, of course. We don't have the mind of God. We do not have access to the secret things that remain in the mind of God. And that's what Paul makes clear to us now, verses 22 and 23. What if God, we read, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? And so why does God only show mercy to some? And why does God prepare some for destruction? Well, it is for God's greater purpose to reveal the full range of his character. You see, God is glorified all the time in all that happens. When God sends people to heaven, what does that show about God? It reveals his mercy, his love, his grace, and that brings him glory. When God condemns and sends people to hell, what does that reveal? Well, it reveals his justice, his holiness, his power, his judgment, and that also brings glory to God. And can't God do that? Well, of course he can. He's God. And now finally, Paul makes the point, because it is God's choice, he has chosen also to save from amongst the Gentiles as well. Verse 24, Even us, whom he also caught, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. And the following quotes from Hosea and Isaiah makes that same point. Those who were not my people, well, I'll make them my people. I'll call them sons of the living God. And why? Because I'm God and that is my right. And so the first question, has God failed? Absolutely not. He kept his promises. Second question, is God unjust? Absolutely not. He can choose to show mercy to whomever he wants because he's God. And third question, is God unfair? Absolutely not. It is his right because he's God. And so that's Romans chapter 9. It makes no apology here for the God of the Bible. He's absolutely sovereign in salvation and judgment. It places us in our rightful place. We are completely at the mercy of God, every single one of us. And it also helps us understand this world. This world is completely lost without God. And I know this passage will raise some questions, so we'll have some questions later. But I do want us all leaving this passage with the right view of God, with the right view of ourselves, and also with the right view of this world. And so firstly, a right view of God. So does God, the God of the Bible, predestine, preordain, and elect to salvation? Well, yes, he does. And it has to be that way. Otherwise, salvation ceases to be a gift. If salvation does not originate from God alone, God's own will alone, he decides that alone, and that we somehow come into play, we somehow contribute, 
then it's no longer an absolutely free gift. But salvation is a gift. You see, those of us who might be troubled by this doctrine of election and predestination, we must see and understand that this teaching is not something we made up. It's something that God has told us. And it comes not just from here, Romans 9. It comes from all places from around the Bible, like Ephesians 1, read at the beginning. Like to Thessalonians, God has determined before the foundation of the earth who will be saved. Jesus said so himself. Jesus said, you did not choose me, I chose you. You see, if I am dead in sin, and that is what we are, dead in sin, I cannot make myself alive again. I've got no power to raise myself back to life. I don't have free will. When people talk about us having free will, that's really nonsense. I'm dead in sin. None of us have absolute free will because we're all constrained by sin. So how can anyone become a Christian if we're dead in sin? Well, God has chosen in his sovereign purposes to make us alive again. And so for anyone to become a Christian in the first place, it is always God's gracious and merciful choice. And that's why God always deserves all the glory for our salvation. All the glory goes to him. He not only chose us, but he provided the means, and that is his son Jesus Christ died in our place to make it possible. And so does God predestine? Well, of course he does. It's the only way. Our former principal of the Bible college I attended, brought to Knox, he summarized it this way, and I found this extremely helpful. He said, The doctrine of predestination is simply the consequence of man's nature, dead in trespasses and sins, and of God's nature, goodness and mercy, and of his sovereignty and power through which he recreates those who are dead in their sins to be his sons and daughters, choosing according to his own wise and loving righteous will. It just makes sense. It is a doctrine that makes sense. And so what this means then is that God's election is unconditional and irresistible. It's unconditional because it does not depend on us at all. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated before they were even born. And so you're a Christian, and if you are a Christian, it's not because you are any better than anyone. It's not because you're any smart or anything about you at all. You're a Christian because God chose you to become a Christian before the foundations of the earth. You see, God's election is unconditional. But it is also irresistible because you can't change God's electing purpose. And so some of us might like to talk along the lines, I decide when I become a Christian. It's my choice, and I'll decide it. No, you can't. You become a Christian when God says so. And when God says so, you can't even resist it. You can't run away from God. If God wants to make you a Christian, he will make you a Christian, and you cannot stop it. You cannot resist God, because if you can resist God, 
It means that you're more powerful than God, and you are not. And so God's election is irresistible. And so this is what we need to understand about God. He's absolutely sovereign. He's immeasurably merciful. He's unconditionally gracious. And it should really captivate us of how majestic and powerful and awe-inspiring this sovereign God is. Now we also need a right view of ourselves. If our salvation is based solely on God and not us, then there must be no pride at all. There can be no pride at all. Election is pride-crushing. It keeps us humble. The only reason why I'm a Christian, why I am saved, the only reason why I became a child of God, the only reason why there is the hope of eternal life and that I'll be raised back to life again, the only reason why I can enter into the kingdom of God is not because of my intelligence or my looks or my abilities or my niceness or my good moral behavior or my character, none of that at all. It is because of God. Not me, God. Jesus said, You did not choose me, I chose you. And that's why Spurgeon, the great Baptist pastor, he called this doctrine the most stripping doctrine of all in the world. He said this, I know nothing, nothing again that is more humbling than this doctrine of election. I have sometimes fallen prostrate before it when endeavouring to understand it. But when I came near it, and the one thought possessed me, God has chosen me from the beginning until salvation. I was staggered by that mighty thought, and from the dizzy elevation down came my soul, prostrate and broken, saying, Lord, I am nothing. I'm less than nothing. Why me? Why me? You see, election keeps us utterly humble. But what it also does is that it brings great comfort and assurance to my salvation, to your salvation. I mean, how comforting is it to know that you are saved not because of you, but because of God? He decided from the beginning. You see, it prevents us from ever thinking that somehow God's love for me, God's eternal purposes for me, becomes dependent on me, that I could ever stop God loving me. See how stressful or paralyzing life would be if salvation depended on you. But it doesn't. Our salvation is not random. It is because of God's sovereign choice. And if God has promised it, he will keep his promise. One theologian said, election means that our salvation is anchored in divine initiative and will come to fruition because of divine security. If God has determined to save, salvation will happen and neither hell nor high water is going to prevent it. Jesus said so himself. He said, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I mean, you try snatching your soul from God's hand, you will fail. Even if the devil tried, he will fail. 
And so why can you be sure that you'll be saved in the end if you are a Christian? Because God has chosen you to be saved and he will not fail. There's no greater comfort and assurance than that. And now finally, a right view of this world. What we need to understand is that everyone in this world is lost without God. And no one can demand or claim anything from God. If anyone wants justice, how is justice for rebels of God? And that is why there is the motivation to evangelize, to proclaim Christ, to make disciples of all nations. But then some of you might ask, well, why go into this world and evangelize when God has already in his mind elected those whom he will save? Whom he will save? Why do it if God already knows and God will already do so? Well, the reason why we are still to do it is because God has predestined. Then we go out, proclaim Christ with great confidence. This gives confidence in our evangelism. It motivates us in our evangelism because we can now do it expectantly because God will save those whom he has called. You see, if evangelism depended on me or you, our eloquence, our skills, our rhetoric, then how great a burden that would be that the salvation of this world depended on us. But it doesn't. The salvation of any soul depends on God. Now, we don't know who the elect are, and that's why we are called to go and make disciples of all nations, proclaim Christ to everyone. And so finally, in summary, do you have a right view of God? Well, we see he's absolutely sovereign, immeasurably merciful and unconditionally gracious. Do you have a right view of yourself? Well, your view of yourself must be that you must be completely humble, but yet at the same time utterly assured of your salvation. And do you have a right view of this world? Well, the right view is that they are all lost without God and all still need to hear the gospel of Christ, for that is the means by which God will bring his elect to faith. Let's pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are absolutely sovereign in predestination and election, that you're immeasurably merciful and unconditionally gracious, that you would even choose to save people like us. But for the rest of us who have yet to understand and to believe, we pray that you will work in them to draw them near, to help them see of the grace that you offer in your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, not surprisingly, uh, we had lots of questions. Uh, Ben's phone was going off the hook uh, with lots of questions. So um, we've had to cull them down. If your question doesn't get asked, I'm sure John would love to chat with you. I'm sure Michelle would love to chat with you. Others in the room would love to chat with you and just keep exploring the questions together. Um, Ben's going to put the, some questions on the screen, though. We've tried to pick some representative ones. Uh, and then, John, you can answer those questions as best you can or say pass or phone a friend. <laughs> or come back next week. <laughs> you come back next week. Yep, more to the point. Ben's just a fan of suspense, so that's what he's doing for us.
It's all part of the genius of the sound desk. Don't worry about it. Are we going to get them up, you reckon, Ben, or shall I run down, get your laptop and just read them out? Come down. I'll try to read them out nice and slowly and I'll leave them here so you can see them. I'm sure I'm going to press something wrong.